Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd flying solo today as Drancer uh, flies to New York to cover the rest of this Canucks road trip. Uh, they kick it off in St. Louis tonight, uh, live from the Kintech studio here. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And uh, some good text coming in, some questions uh, about Canucks playoff potential matchup, some questions about the lineup and who's getting called up. So I will get into those later on in the show. But as mentioned, now joining me, the voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650, our guy, Brendan Batchelor. Batch, what's up, man? Happy New Year. And to you as well. How's it going? It's going very well. It's uh, it's just me today, so I haven't I haven't invented any like nonsensical game involving tears or drafting for you to play, which normally drains. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I figured you'd, I, I, I figured you'd be okay. I with was that. gonna say I, I don't know if I'm re-engaged enough from the holidays to <laughs> be prepared for something like that. Like I've still got Christmas brain here a little bit, so yeah. uh, we'll uh, we'll dip our toes back in here. It is wild because obviously, you know, over the break, still locked in on everything the Canucks are doing, but I find I shut out a lot of the rest of the league. And then on Tuesday coming in and kind of like checking NHL.com, like, oh, wow, that happened. All right. Interesting. They got to shake off some of the rust when we uh, get back at it here in January. Um, So lineup tonight and, you know, some interesting decisions to be made with Phil DiGiuseppe leaving that game. And it sounds like he's not going to be an option for a while as talk had said after that Ottawa game, what's your read on the situation? You know, having seen the reporting from Kate Pedersen, listen to talk it and say, Hey, we've got some decisions to make. Do you, are you willing to hazard a guess about who might be the odd man looking out at forward here going into tonight's tonight's game in St. Louis? Uh, yeah, I'll hazard a guess, but it's going to be just that yeah. because the other night we thought it was going to be, you know, one of two players and it ended up being Niels Oman coming mm-hmm. out instead of, uh, you know, a D Giuseppe or Kuzmenko, I think is what we were talking about going into the game if memory serves. So, um, so yeah, or, or D Giuseppe and Hoaglander, I should say. So, uh, you know, based on the way they ran things at morning skate, I would lean Niels Hoaglander at this point, just because, uh, Kuzmenko worked on the top power play unit. And generally speaking, if he's not on the top power play unit of the morning skate, that's been an indication of him coming out of the lineup. But even if he was rotating in on a line, uh, he was still working on that power play unit. I guess there's a, a chance that Linus Carlson doesn't play as well, but Tockett is kind of like Linus Carlson mm-hmm. and utilized him pretty well when he has gone into the lineup this year and has been recalled. And, the fact that Tockett even sort of alluded to the fact the other night before they'd even called up Carlson that, hey, whoever gets called up might actually go straight into the lineup. Like, I, I lean more towards it being Hoaglander coming out than Carlson. But that said, you know, it, it's interesting to me to to see this from Tockett for two games in a row where he's not willing to commit to his lineup. And whether that is because they are actually going into the late afternoon in terms of making their decision or whether it's the second half of the year now and he's getting a little bit more cagey about revealing stuff to the media. I'm not sure, but we'll have to wait and see what happens in warm up in terms of do all of the available players take to the ice for warm up first of all, and then what they decide mm-hmm. to do in terms of who they're going to pull out of the lineup. 
Does it so? Because I agree with you. It does seem likely Linus Carlson is going to get in just based on what they were doing at uh, at Morning Skate today and talk its commentary about Carlson in the past. But it is still kind of surprising when you think about it. You know, th- just think about the success Andre Kuzmenko had last year. What Niels Hoaglander has done. You know, playing in the top six, scoring goals for the team this year. If it is Carlson in and one of those players sitting, I mean, does that say more about Linus Carlson or does it say more about? Some of the frustrations that Talkett still has with the games of both Kuzmenko and Niels Hoaglander. I think it says more about the style of player and that Linus Carlson might be a better fit on a fourth line Hmm. in a role where, you know, you want to trust a guy defensively and you like the way he plays along the walls and, and the battles he can win and things like that, as opposed to looking at, you know, the offensive upside of having a guy like, Hoaglander or Kuzmenko in the lineup because it seems clear based on the way that they deployed the lines that at the very least both of those players have lost their spot in the top six for this game tonight and of course we know lines can go in the blender and things can change and a guy like Di Giuseppe can get hurt in the first period and suddenly you've got 11 forwards and everything goes out the window but based on the way they skated this morning it's Lafferty and Suter being Mm -hmm. elevated up the lineup and Hoaglander and Kuzmenko at the very least being moved down the lineup so to me that speaks to more of a stylistic fit on what you want to see from your fourth line and it's talking kind of tipping his hand to something that he's talked about lately which is that with the current personnel that they have you know he doesn't feel he's got guys that can be consistent top six forwards in Kuzmenko and Hoaglander or Di Giuseppe or whoever else you might put in that rotating door Lafferty of guys that are going up the lineup So I think he's more looking at riding the hot hand in terms of who he gives the opportunity to. And you look at Suter, six points in his last five games, Lafferty, two points in his last three games, as opposed to a guy like Hoaglander who hasn't hit the score sheet in four consecutive Mm. games now. And uh, Kuzmenko, who's a guy that's, you know, struggled at times throughout this season to generate the offense they're hoping for from him. So uh, I wonder if that's what we're more likely to see from Tockett, assuming that, you know, the organization doesn't make a trade to try and shore up one of those top six wing spots is it literally just be a situation of who's going right now. And if you're going, then you'll get a chance to play and play up the lineup with some of the top players on the team. As you mentioned, Pew Suter looking like he's going to get a chance to skate in the top six on the wing with uh, JT Miller and Brock Besser. And, you know, Rick Tockett was uh, effusive in his praise of Suter and said, yeah, he was everywhere after Phil DiGiuseppe went out. They moved him up and down the lineup. And I mean, if you look at the season, really, I, I feel like Pew Suter, it's early for team award talks here, Batch, but I feel like Pew Suter should almost have the Unsung Hero Award locked up at this point, just with how versatile he is, how many different things he can do. And, you know, you look, he goes out of the lineup, uh, I think it was in the Montreal game, and that almost perfectly corresponds with a little bit of a dip, that 500 stretch of hockey for the Canucks. He comes back in the lineup, uh, and they start winning all their games all of a sudden. And again, and I'm not saying it's just Pew Suter's impact, but it's really incredible how much he can help this team and just kind of all the under-the-radar things you can do and the versatility he brings that that just helps the team win. He's a player that the Canucks haven't had in recent years Mm. where he can play the middle, he can play the wing, he can play up the lineup, he can play down the lineup, and he's effective wherever you put him. That's not something we've seen this team have uh, over the last few years, and in fact, it's something that, you know, past head coaches have bemoaned that, you know, they don't have enough guys that that can play in the middle if you need them to or go to the wing. And this Canucks team has a lot more flexibility with that. You know, a guy like Lafferty can play the middle or the wing. Oman can play the middle or the wing. Suter can play the middle or the wing. 
and is a player that you know what you get from him every night. He's a great 200-foot forward, right? He's reliable defensively. He's not going to be a liability in the defensive zone, but there's a offensive bottom line that we've been seeing here certainly of late. And right before he went out with the injury, he had a number of goals in the few games before he went out. And as I said, you know, six points in the last five games, including four goals, that's a definitive bottom line that shows that you might be worthy of more ice time and more opportunity to play in some of those prime roles, especially when you compare it to some of the players that haven't been producing as consistently. So, um, you know, the, the offense is one thing, but I think it's more the reliability and the trust that he has from the coaching staff, regardless of where he is on the ice that leads to him getting a chance to play more often, play up the lineup and directly correlates what you're talking about where when he's in the lineup the team's had more success Mm -hmm. and you can even you know take that a a step further and I think it was Drancer that had the stat the other day and I don't have it off the top of my head but something like you know the Canucks are outscoring opponents eight to nothing when he's on the ice at five on five since he's been back from injury and I think that was a stat he had going into the game so it might be even better than that coming off uh, the win the other night so when you have a player where the team's results trend in the right direction when he's in the lineup and the results of the team directly, you know, trend upwards when he's on the ice. It shows that he's a guy that's making an impact whenever he's out there. And you can understand why Talkett trusts him and why he would elevate him in a situation where he loses a guy like Di Giuseppe to injury. Yeah, it's it's a good point you make about the team not having players like that in recent years. Because so often prior to this year, right, the conversation has been, there's a lot of talent, but is it less than the sum of its parts? And I think part of that has been, you know, okay, well, this guy's a good player, but does, do we have the right center for him to play with on this team? And if he's not in the top six, does he really make sense in the bottom six? Can he kill penalties? And it's just been kind of hard to fit all of the puzzle pieces together. It's almost been like some of the coaches have been, you know, trying to assemble a puzzle, but the pieces don't quite match. And then you bring in Suter, and, you know, just to use one example, because I think he's the clear example of this, who can literally play anywhere without any concern, and all of a sudden it just makes Rick Tockett's job and the coaching staff's job so much easier, right? Because you don't have to pull your hair out wondering, okay, hey, this guy's a good player, but where does he fit in the lineup? You can just plug him wherever with confidence. Yeah, and particularly at the center ice position, both Suter and Bluger make such a big difference. Yeah. But also, as I mentioned, Oman and Lafferty, because if you have a centerman that goes down to injury in past years, you were calling up a guy that was playing in the AHL to play down the middle because you didn't trust any of your wingers to move to that center ice spot. And suddenly, you know, that's on paper anyway, one fewer NHL quality player that's in your lineup. Whereas if you can shuffle things, so when Suter went out, Bluger moves up into that spot with Joshua and Garland. And obviously that has, you know, worked very well. Um, but then you have a guy like Oman, who I know he was down in the AHL to start the year, but based on the way he played in training camp, it was clear that the coaching staff anyway felt that he was worthy of an NHL job and, you know, because of a numbers game and a salary cap situation had to go down to the AHL. You, you, Niels Oman goes into the middle, Teddy Bluger elevates up the lineup, and suddenly, you know, even though you don't have a guy like Suter, you've still got four centermen that I guess you feel anyway are NHL quality centermen, as opposed to having to call a guy up. And like, you look at how different the middle of the ice is this year compared to last year for the Canucks. Like it's easy to forget that Sheldon dry has played a lot of games last year as the third line center and nothing against Sheldon dries. I think he acquitted himself well in that role to a certain extent, you know, as much as he was capable of, and he produced some offense 
as a result too, but there is a clear talent golf and a clear golf in what you get from your guys down the middle in the bottom six. When you're looking at Teddy Bluger, when you're looking at Pew Suter, as opposed to someone like Sheldon Dries. So I think that more than anything is, is what helps shore things up for them is they can withstand an injury down the middle now. And I might even go as far as to say, and I wouldn't have said this at the start of the year. In fact, I said the exact opposite, but I wonder if they could withstand an injury to one of their top two centermen. Obviously it's not ideal to lose Miller or Pedersen for any sort of extended stretch, but the way Suter has played and how he's fit in when he's gone up the lineup, mostly in a a winger position, I've got more confidence now that if Miller or Pedersen had to miss a handful of games, that Suter would be a worthy fill-in player at the very least that could sort of hold down the fort while one of those guys is out of the lineup. And that's a much different conversation than anything we've had with this team around the center ice position in the last few years. Well, and I think part of that batch too is – they they have such a good record now, right? That, and you think back to Jim Rutherford at the beginning of the year saying we need everything to go right to be a playoff team, and of course a huge part of that is the health of the top players. You couldn't, you know, you, you coming into the season if you'd said, hey, they're going to miss Elias Pettersson for six weeks at some point, you would have said, well, they're not making the playoffs, right? But now, to your point, like one the depth, but also the cushion they've built in the standings. I'm not saying it would necessarily be easy, but even if, you know, heaven forbid, you were there was to be a significant injury to a star player, like I think those combination of factors, they'd be able to survive it and still be a playoff team, even with some major adversity like that. Yeah, I tend to think so too, and that's the the benefit of uh, of a cushion. Now let's hope that this theory isn't tested. Yeah, let's with hope it's hypothetical, because... purely hypothetical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've got to knock on whatever piece of wood yes. you've got closest to you. Um, but you know, I I tend to agree. And and that's the benefit of a cushion is, you know, in the second half of the season in recent years, you know, it's about winning every game and it's about making, you know, decisions that are allowing you to win this game rather than, you know, looking at the longer term and not to say that I think the coaching staff would, would look long-term, right. They're incredibly focused on the day to day Mm -hmm. and the game to game. And that's what they preach to their players, but you don't have to lay all out and make decisions that are absolutely, we have to win this game tonight 100% or it's really going to hurt our playoff odds. Now you've got a cushion. Now you can manage minutes of your top players more effectively down the stretch. You know, you can do things like not play JT Miller and Elias Pettersson very much on the penalty kill, which is what we've seen lately. And, you know, coincidentally, it's kind of come along at the same time as first of all, Suter coming back to the lineup, but also the penalty kill trending in the right direction. So, that's a positive thing for this group too. Your penalty kills doing very well. You're not overusing your top players in that situation. Um, and you're still finding a way to win games. And I've said this in the past, but I'll say it again. You know, we look at last year and it, a bad start snowballed into bad storylines off the ice, becoming the headlines snowballed into the team, continuing to struggle and things just kept getting worse and worse. It felt like until they made the coaching change in January, Well, when you have a good start, it's amazing how things can snowball for you in a positive direction in terms of how you can manage the minutes of your players, how you can manage the starts for your starting goaltender. You know, if this Canucks team didn't have the start that they did to this season, do you think there's any chance Casey DeSmith is starting that game against Philadelphia coming out of the holiday break? I don't think so, but they took the opportunity to give Thatcher Demko a nice long break to get him some work in with the goaltending staff. And, you know, he's able to come back in. And now that they've got a a busy stretch of road games here, they're going to have to rely on him. 
But at the same time, they also know they can go to DeSmith so they don't have to overwork Demko. So, you know, that's just one element of many things that, you know, success breeds success. And, and the fact that you have a good start allows you to do things that will set you up for more sustained success. And that's what I see from this Canucks group. And that applies to if they suffer any injuries up their lineup going forward as well, maybe with the exception of Quinn Hughes, who I think is pretty much irreplaceable on that blue line. Yeah, that's a good point. There's there's no one, there's no candidate to duplicate what he can do uh, from the back end. Now, speaking of the blue line, and I think this is another situation where, again, that cushion and all of the the freedom and the benefits that come with it will play or could play a part here in how the team goes about things. But Carson Soucy back skating with the team, still technically on LTIR and you look at it, and, you know, I think a month ago it would have been really easy to say, well, Noah Juleson will come out of the lineup whenever Carson Soucy is ready to go. But, you know, how often uh, in that month has Tockett spoken about how much he likes what Noah Juleson is doing? He's been a big part of the team's penalty kill recently. We know how much Tockett likes having three left-shot defensemen and three right-shot defensemen in the lineup, which is how they're configured right now. If you take Juleson out for Soucy, all of a sudden you've got four lefties and look they don't have to make the decision tonight we don't know when they have to make the decision they can afford to be patient with Susie but how do you see that one playing out if Susie does draw in at some point on this road trip badge yeah it's a tough one because Juleson you know in spite of the fact that a lot of the fan base have kind of maligned him I think has quietly been very consistent uh assuming he plays tonight it'll be his 24th consecutive game in the lineup He's averaging north of 14 minutes in that stretch and, you know, has become a pretty reliable penalty killer for this group. And, um, you know, playing with Ian Cole, I think, has, has been pretty successful finding a role for himself and, and really carving out a good spot in the lineup and giving this team some consistent minutes. Now, this is a, a great luxury to have that uh, making this decision is a, a tough one because if you are going to pull Juleson out or – or say, you know, I guess Zadorov or Myers, theoretically, you could yeah. pull out of the lineup. But, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's something that they're, they're willing to explore. But what it does do, you know, aside from what that decision might be, which is kind of hard to predict, is it allows them to give Carson Soucy time. And, and this is another thing that you talk about a good first half affords you. If you were in a, a desperate playoff race, maybe you're rushing Soucy back into the lineup because you feel like you need him to win games. Well, you're winning games. Juleson's playing uh, above his head, I think it's probably fair to say. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't something we've seen from him in his NHL career, this level of consistency. And maybe this is the level that he's going to be able to play to going forward. And you can start to look at him more as a legitimate number six than a number seven. But assuming right now, based on most of his body of work, that he's a number seven defenseman, the fact that he's been in there for, you know, essentially a quarter of the season has given you some good minutes, has been a a benefit rather than a detriment to your club. And now you've got a hard decision about whether to pull him out of the lineup or not. And as a result, you can slow cook returning Susie if you need to and make sure that he's 100% ready to go. You know, that's another thing that that will only benefit this team going forward. So uh, I don't envy the coaching staff in terms of that decision because I, I don't think it's going to be an easy one. And um, you know, Susie, obviously the, the big free agent acquisition coming in in the off season on the three year contract, you're not going to want to sit him out incredibly long, but at the same time, as long as things are working and you're winning games and you like the way you're playing, I would be loath to change very much as well. 
It's a good point. For as well as, you know, Bluger, Suter, Ian Cole have all played and all fit, they spent the most money on Carson Soucy in the summer. <laughs> like, that was the guy who was really expected to be the biggest impact. He's been out of the lineup for so long. But, you know, eventually he will get back on the ice and they'll have to make that decision. Uh, zooming out a little bit and just looking at the road trip as a whole batch. And, you know, when the schedule's released and we start kind of pouring it o- pouring over it before we know how the Canucks are going to do to start the season, you it, it would be easy to look at this stretch and say, oh, man, coming out of Christmas, you know, seven games out east, some good teams on that. Like, we expected Buffalo to be better, right? You know, Pittsburgh, New Jersey, probably expect to be a little better uh, than they are right now in the standings. This looks pretty daunting. At this point, it's still going to be a challenge, but it doesn't feel as kind of looming as it would have for the Canucks at the start of the season. What are you kind of hoping to learn or kind of curious to see from the Canucks on this road trip, given that, again, the stakes are a lot lower uh, with where they are in the standings right now? Yeah, I think it kind of speaks to the same thing that Rick Tockett was harping on uh, about the last 40 minutes of the game the other night where you get the 5 nothing lead and, you know, maybe it's human nature to a certain extent to kind of let your foot off the gas. Um, when you look at this seven-game road trip and some of the opposition on it, like that's what I look at is how do you play against St. Louis tonight in a game against a team that, you know, isn't anywhere near you in the standings later in the trip? You know, they've got Columbus uh and buffalo those kind of things are you know you've built this cushion so you're not desperate for points but can you still dial in and have a good road trip and have a successful road trip in spite of the fact that some of the teams you're playing may be more desperate than you are for points or should be more desperate than you are and then i just want to see how they go up against some of the top teams that they're going to face like the devils on saturday like the rangers on monday um you know I don't know if we call them measuring stick games anymore because the Canucks are legitimately one of the top teams in the league now with the way they played this year. But how do you perform against other teams that you would put in that conversation? Because once you get to the the postseason and and your goal is to not just get there, but have some success, you are going to have to perform well against other teams that have had very good seasons and other teams that are kind of in a similar spot to you at this point in the year where you've had the good first half, you know what, uh, you have accomplished, you know, likely that you're going to the playoffs at this point, um, but you still have to find a way to win games and be professional and, and continue to, to elevate yourself up the standings because, you know, as much as the playoffs were probably the goal coming into the season now, Rick Tockett talks about raising the bar yeah. and there's a legitimate chance to win this division or at the very least have home ice advantage to start the playoffs. And that's something this team sh- should be striving for. So, you know, I don't know if manufacturing urgency is the right way to put it, but how can this team perform on a tough trip like this where they have this cushion and they don't need to be desperate for points like they have been over the last few years? Because that to me is maybe the most interesting thing about this second half to the season as a whole is this is a situation that this group of Canuck players have never been in with this organization because the only year that they were sort of in a playoff position in the second half of the season was the the COVID year where they didn't get to play out that stretch run. And then, you know, obviously they did well in the bubble playoffs, but, you know, players like Pedersen and Hughes and the young core group of this team have not experienced a full stretch run and what that entails when you are in it, when you are battling for uh, playoff contention, when you're battling for home ice, when you're trying to elevate your standards internally and so that's what's going to be fascinating not just about this road trip but about the whole second half of the season to me is how do the Canucks 
manage the fact that they've had success to start the year and that they don't need to treat every game like a must-win desperation kind of situation like they have over the last few years, while at the same time also wanting to achieve more than they have and continue to have success as a group and prepare for what they hope anyway will be a good run in the playoffs. It's a good point, Batch. Uh, all great stuff as always, man. Appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the game tonight. I'm sure we'll chat soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Have a good one. That is Brendan Batchelor, voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. And, of course, he will have the call uh, tonight on the St. Louis game along with Randy Jan. I do like that point about Batch, about just being in uncharted territory here where – Look, it's never you're never going to feel the same level of desperation to win your division as you are to make the playoffs. The playoffs is just such an important psychological thing for players, for teams in the NHL, right? The 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 significance of getting in even if it's in eighth place is huge. So you're never going to be able to manufacture that type of urgency, but can you find that kind of middle ground between letting your foot off the gra- gas while also knowing you you know you don't have to go out there and desperately try for points? Uh, night in, night out. How do you handle the remaining portion of the schedule? Are you still able to keep that level of play as high as possible without that urgency and without, you know, the coaching staff certainly sacrifice, you know, running up the minutes on key players? Can you do both? Can you take the foot off the gas so you're fresh for the playoffs while also maintaining that sharpness for the playoffs? That's going to be an interesting challenge. I like the batch raise that point there for the Canucks going in uh, to the second half of the season here. Okay, tonight, as mentioned, they're playing the Blues. Matthew DeFranks covers the Blues for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He will join us next uh, on the show. Before I do that, i got to tell you about Scotiabank Hockey Day in Canada. It's taking place January 17th to the 20th in Victoria, B.C. Multiple days for Hockey Day in Canada this year. 32 thoughts. We'll be recording a live show at Wicket Hall in downtown Victoria on Thursday, January 18th. Show starts at 2. Expected to join Jeff and Elliot, our former Canucks, Kevin Bieksa, and front office member Brian Burke, other NHL alumni, and the Stanley Cup. Again, 32 Thoughts live show on Thursday, January 18th in downtown Victoria. If you would like a free pair of tickets, call right now, 604 280 604-280-0650. Caller 3 wins a pair of tickets to the 32 Thoughts Live show in Victoria on the 18th. We're giving away another pair tomorrow, so if you don't get them today, uh, call back tomorrow. 604-280-0650. Matthew DeFranks up next on Canucks Talk. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd flying solo today. No Thomas Trance. He's uh, on the road getting ready to cover the rest of the Canucks road trip. Not in St. Louis tonight, however. Uh, he'll he'll join the team or meet the team at least in New York. Trance will be back on the show tomorrow. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at D-L-E-A-M-C. Dot com. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, powered by thousands 
of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet. What are you waiting for? 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Some good text to get into later on in the show. But as mentioned, of course, with the Canucks down in St. Louis tonight, uh, we now welcome to the show from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He is Matthew DeFranks. Matthew, thank you for doing this today. Happy New Year. How are you? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. So, uh, this is the second time the Canucks and Blues have met this year, but first since the firing of Craig Berube. And, you know, just to, to rewind a little bit in the Blues season, what was it? What was the kind of the, the final nail in the coffin or the, you know, the the real pressing issues that led the team to decide to dismiss Craig Berube and go in a different direction? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people around the, you know, the city were surprised at it. Uh, you know, for me, I look at this Blues team and, you know, they're supposed to be a mediocre team. They're supposed to be in the middle of the league. And guess what? They're mediocre yeah. and in the middle of the league. So uh, I was a little bit surprised that they put this team together with this in mind, but they wanted to move on from the coach. But I think when you look at that stretch of four games right before Craig Berube got fired, that's what really did it for him. Uh, you know, they were badly outplayed uh, against Vegas in a loss, and then they lost to Columbus, Chicago, and Detroit. And it's really been, for the most part, this whole season, the, the inconsistency of the team. Uh, for the longest time, they were either winning by three goals or losing by three goals. And when you showed up at the rink the, the night of the game, you didn't know which one it was going to be, right? And I think for Doug Armstrong, he wanted a little bit, you know, a fewer wild swings and then you know, we all know how difficult it is to change a full roster and decided uh, that he would go ahead and change just the coach instead and try to go about fixing things that way. You know, I know. I think sometimes in hockey there comes a point where the coach is just, it's time to move on, right? And, you you know, sometimes we say, oh, he's lost the room or the players aren't responding or whatever it is, and it's not the coach's fault, but it's just, hey, you need a new voice uh, to speak to the players. And sometimes there's more to it than that, right? There's, hey, the team isn't prepared or they're not playing defensively the way the GM wants. There's a, a, a tactical issue. Were there things that, you know, beyond just having a new voice that they wanted a new coach to do differently to kind of clean up in the Blues game? Yeah, so the two things that, that Doug Armstrong mentioned were accountability and competitiveness. Those were the two things that he wanted Drew Bannister to bring, and then he wanted to see whenever he does end up hiring a full-time coach instead of uh, having an interim yep. Bannister. And so you know, when we talked to, to Armstrong after he fired Barubi, you know, one of the questions was, okay, well, what could Barubi have done differently? And Armstrong didn't really have a, an answer, right? It, it wasn't that... Uh, you know, they needed to, to change four checks or they needed to change their, you know, their, their power play formation or, you know, stuff like that. And like, it wasn't tactical things. His, his response was basically, well, I didn't know, you know, if we kept on going with the same coach that the results would be any different than we've seen. So uh, he just wanted to try something different. And, you know, to me, it's a little bit unfair when, you know, you ask, uh, hey, what could a coach have done differently to save his job? And the answer is more or less uh, nothing. <laughs> like that's that's not a really fair position to to be in from my perspective. But you know, in the end, things will probably work out for for all parties. To be honest, like Brewery's going to get paid his the rest of his contract out, right? He's going to get his money. He's probably going to get to pick uh, his next destination yeah. that has a different traje- trajectory than the Blues are currently on, right? So it might work out better for him in the long run. And and the Blues, I mean, clearly. Uh, they had already kind of thought about this. This is not like a, a one-game sort of situation you make a, a decision on. And so if they're thinking about it, they're looking at what's next. And 
they'll be able to to find whoever they want after that. So in the end, it probably won't end up mattering a, a ton. You know, I don't really see a, a 2019 repeat coming in St. Louis, uh, but you know, it is still surprising to see for me. You know, you mentioned Barubi has a chance now to go maybe join a team on a different trajectory than the Blues are. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating for me about the Blues. You know, you mentioned just on a game-to-game basis, not really knowing what to expect from the team this season. And I look at it and, you know, I don't really have a clear idea what to expect going forward either. As you said, mediocre team, middle of the standings this year. But you also look and, you know, they have a lot of money committed on the books to some long-term deals uh, for players coming up. So it's not as if, if it's going to be easy to kind of drastically remake the roster. What direction is this team headed? Like, what should we expect to see from Armstrong and the and the and the front office? You know, going into the trade deadline, and then even beyond that, going into next year, what are the kind of goals for this team in the in the medium and long term here? Yeah, the 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 team that Armstrong has always pointed to as kind of uh, you know his goal for for this retool, rebuild, whatever you want to call it, it it's been the the LA Kings. And we know that they struggled for, you know, a few years and they got those top five picks and, you know, whether they've worked or not, it's up for debate when you look at Byfield yeah. and Turcotte and, and stuff like that. But uh, the their bigger moves came on the trade market and free agency, right? Uh, I look at Arvidsson, Fiala, uh, Deneau, Dubois, mm-hmm. like all those moves that they made to, to get in veteran guys that could help the team right now. And, you know, at the same time, and at one point they were considered probably the best farm in the league, right, um, with all their guys. And we see Brant Clark's coming up right now, so we'll see what he has. But that's the kind of the rebuild that Doug Armstrong wants to have, uh, that they don't fully tank, they don't fully bottom out, and they're able to kind of make some moves uh, with veteran guys to, to fix the NHL roster. You know, whether that's possible or not, um, you know, I don't know. And the thing to keep in mind with L.A., like for how good as they look this season and for as good as, you know, we think their prospects could be, uh, they still haven't won a playoff series in about 10 years, right? So it's not like it's a a certain thing to go one path and then see that the L.A. teams have done what they've done. Uh, You still don't know what you're getting at the end of it. And with the Blues in particular, like, I mentioned all those forwards that the Kings got. They really, you know, the Blues really need help on, on defense, and that's where all their money's tied up on. And when Berube was fired, and, and Armstrong spoke to the, to the reporters, you know, he mentioned that that no player should feel safe, that he's not, uh, you know, he's not past buying players out or putting them on waivers, and you know, it, it's it would be eating a lot of money if you put some guys on oh, waivers, yeah. right? Uh, but for me, you look at a guy like Nick Letty. Uh, he could be a buyout candidate in this next summer where he, after this year, he'll have two years left at $4 million. And does that contract become a little bit more palatable to buy out versus the, the bigger ones like Falk and Crude, who have you know another year uh, past Letty and are at 6.5 instead. So, yeah, you know, as you mentioned, kind of, okay, the, the Kings route, potentially, that's the, that's who Armstrong has uh, has pointed to. And, you know, of course, they, they keep Kopitar, they keep Doughty, they kept Quick for a while mm-hmm. there, but everyone else kind of eventually got jettisoned, whether it's, you know, Alec Martinez, Jake Muzzin, Tyler Toffoli. 
traded. And, you know, I look for trying to try to draw the analogy and obviously no two situations are the same, but to St. Louis. And, you know, a couple of years ago, it looked like, okay, Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo up front, they're going to be kind of the bridge to extending the Blues window and and keeping them as a a really strong team for a while to come. They're both on big money, long-term contracts now. Is that still how the organization sees them as, okay, guys, we want to keep and build around? Or do they fall into that category of, you know what, I'm not afraid to make changes, that there's really nobody who's kind of a lock to build around for St. Louis? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hedge just a just a touch on this one. That's all right. So 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 Thomas and Cairo are the main reasons that the Blues aren't going full tank and full rebuild. You know, when when you have guys that are 24, 25 years old signed to long term deals that you know I think will end up being steals in the long run uh, when you see their production. I mean, Thomas this year is on pace for I think 88 points and that's without a functional power play and with Tyroo's shooting percentage down. So in a normal year where he's getting more production from a power play and more production from his most uh, often, you know, uh, line mate, his numbers are going to be even higher. And if he is a 90 to a hundred point guy at just a touch over 8 million, that's a steal uh, of a deal. And so when you have those two guys signed to long-term deals uh, with cost certainty and the cap scheduled to go up soon, that's the main reason why they don't want to tank and rebuild because in their eyes, they say, well, we could tank and rebuild the, the long way. And then we end up with uh, Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo as 18 year olds instead. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of why they, they can't really go the, the whole bottom out and, and draft high and wait for seven years until they can hope to, to get back in. Uh, and that's kind of been the organization's thought process in those two guys. Now, when Armstrong says that no player should feel safe, uh, you know, to me, the only one player that should be is Robert Thomas uh, because of what he brings uh, from a 200-foot you know, level. He He's on the top line. He plays top line minutes. He top power play unit, first guy's out on the PK. Uh, he wins battles. He's obviously a center, uh, right-handed, and – and he's going to be a big producer as he already is this year. So to me, that's the one guy that that's untouchable. You know, Cairo, if he can help you get some help on defense, um, you know, that's something that they probably have to entertain at least, you know, not saying that they should go out and trade him, but, you know, listen and, and see what's out there. Uh, I could see that being a little bit more palatable because he is a little bit less, uh, you know, his overall game isn't as good as Thomas, right? And he's a little bit more inconsistent. And uh, so I could see that kind of being something they consider at least. But those two guys are, are cornerstones for this team right now and the reason that they really haven't entertained a rebuild. A few more minutes here with Matthew DeFranks from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch talking St. Louis Blues ahead of the Canucks and the Blues tonight and uh blues made some move today uh today with a roster move recalling uh Jakob Vrana from the AHL and we know for the player it's been uh, a rough road in the NHL and his pro career for a few years now and and with St. Louis in particular uh having gone down to the AHL what do you expect the the plan to be for Vrana moving forward from a blues perspective yeah it's it was a weird transaction today to be honest uh <laughs> you know the blues haven't haven't played since Saturday. So they had these four days between games. Uh, they had two practices the last two game, two days. And Verona wasn't even at morning state today. 
so he was not at morning skate. They recall him in the afternoon. Like I, I don't really kind of understand it <laughs> a ton. And the other side is, you know, they, they send the Tita Alexandrov down to, uh, to Springfield to get on a conditioning loan, which they probably could have done tomorrow to extend this conditioning loan a little bit longer. But yeah, a transaction I didn't really get entirely. Um, now, if they're recalling him, to me, the the best point of uh, the best path forward for for the Blues is to play Vrana a lot, see what kind of value he can restore on the trade market. He will be a UFA uh, in the summer. Uh, he is on a, a an expensive cap hit for for what he brings, but not an expensive cap hit overall, since the, the Red Wings are already retaining half of it. And if the Blues can retain a little bit more of it. Uh, they can maybe squeeze some sort of value uh, of, out of Verona on the trade market because uh, that has to be what they need to look for, right? He, he, there's not really any point to, to calling him back up and scratching him. Mm. So, you know, we haven't had uh, a chance to talk to, to Drew Bannister since the, the moves this afternoon. And so I'm kind of intrigued to, to find out what they want to do with him, to be honest. Uh, last question for you, Matt, uh, before we let you go here. You know, you mentioned the power play and how much it struggled this year. And when I was doing my prep for the game tonight, that's a, that's something that jumped off the page to me, too. I think 31st in the league, down mm-hmm. there around 10 11%. And, you know, it's not as if there's no talent there, right? We talked about Thomas and Cairo. Buchnevich is a, is a high-skill player. I, I, I can understand, you know, there's not really that classic uh, prototypical power play quarterback on the blue line. But, like, why has the power play struggled the way it has this year for St. Louis? Yeah, to me, it's a, it's a lot of parts that don't really fit well together. Uh, you look at their their top offensive guys, and they got them all on on the first power play unit. When it's Thomas, Kyrie, Buchnevich, Shannon, Krug, uh, those are all the the five guys on the top power play unit. You can make an argument that four of them uh, are best suited to be on the half wall, right? And, mm. and maybe one of them, Kyrou, has a has a one timer that's that's dangerous and outside of that you know maybe Shen can do it but you know it's not really Buchnevich or Thomas's game so you have all these pieces that don't really fit into a bumper spot or don't fit at, at the net front and and suddenly these guys it doesn't it doesn't work as well right when you have those guys all together and uh, it's something that they've tried a little bit on, on the second unit uh, when they've had a one-timer option there, Justin Falk. Uh, we'll probably see Colton Pareko there in a one-timer option there on the second unit tonight. Uh, they have guys that kind of fit their roles a little bit more. Um, and I, I haven't run the numbers entirely, but I think if you looked at the Blues power play goals this year, it's almost split half and half between the first unit and the second unit. And that's not really a good sign when no. the first unit gets, you know, 75% of the ice time. So, uh, yeah, just to me, a lot of ill-fitting, Ill-fitting parts. And it's not, it, it's kind of weird too, because you look at the, the edge stats uh, that the NHL provides in terms of uh, zone time and the blues are towards the top of the league in zone time on the power play. Uh, they're towards the top of the league and face off win percentage on the power play. So they're getting the puck. They have possession of it. They're just not scoring. And this has been the case for you know, almost 40 games now. It's not like it's a 10 game segment. So uh, yeah, definitely a lot of work to do there. And, you know, they, with a, with an okay power play, if, even if they were just mediocre, you know, you wonder how far much, uh, up the standards there would be. 
Yeah, I feel like in the NHL, if you have two roughly equal power play units, that's actually kind of a problem. You just want to load up that first power play unit and everyone really get it clicking most of the time. Uh, Matthew, really appreciate the insight. I, I do find the Blues fascinating. Should be an interesting one tonight in St. Louis. Thanks for doing this. For sure. That is Matthew DeFranks covering the St. Louis Blues uh, for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And, yeah, with some pretty frank thoughts uh, uh, about just, you know, the decision to hire to fire Craig Berube. And, as he said, Doug Armstrong not really being able to provide a, a thing that Berube could have done differently. Now recalling Verana. You know, they're in a bit of a, t- a difficult situation with all the money they have the books, especially on the back end, uh, but also up front to a certain degree as well. And, you know, it's easy to say – okay, hey, we want to follow the LA Kings model, but one, as Matthew pointed out, I mean, look, I I like what the LA Kings did a lot. I think they're reaping the rewards now, but it's not as if they've gone on a deep run in the playoffs yet. I think that's also totally fair to point out. And the thing with the Kings was they had really desirable trade assets that they could move at various points. Again, I ran through some of them in that chat, right? But Jake Muzzin, they got a good haul for. Uh, Tyler DeFoley to Vancouver, they got a good pick for, right? Uh, Alec Martinez to Golden Knight. They were able, there's other guys too. They were able to move those players uh, and then collect those assets and either make those picks or send them out for other guys who fit better. With the Blues, you know, somebody texted in there just towards the end of the interview. I didn't have a chance to run it past uh, DeFranks, but they asked, you know, okay, what about Pavel Buchnevich? What would that cost? And yeah, that's a an interesting player uh, on the trade market for sure. Although he does have one more year at 5.8, but that's a high skill guy that I think a lot of teams would be interested in. Other than that, you know, there's so much money they have wrapped up on the blue line in Falk, Krug, Pareko, Letty. Those guys all have no trade clauses, too. And you look at it, you know, Brandon Saad, he has a no trade clause, right? Braden Shen's your captain. You're probably not thinking about moving him. There's not a lot of guys that jump out at you and say, oh, wow, they could trade that guy and get something really good in return. You know, Buchnevich might be that one piece they have. So I get it. I like the comparison to the LA Kings as a model to try to follow for an NHL team, but every situation is different, and I'm not sure it's going to be quite that easy for Doug Armstrong and the St. Louis Louis Blues, too. It'll be fascinating to see what they end up doing with Vrana uh, as well after he was recalled today. It is Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd here solo today. Drancer back on the show tomorrow. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And by the way, congratulations to Jody. You and a friend will attend the 32 Thoughts live show at the Wicket Hall in Victoria on Thursday, January 18th. Tune in to Canucks Talk tomorrow for another chance to win a pair to that show. So shout out to Jody, and we'll give away another pair tomorrow on the show. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, somebody texted a little bit earlier when we were talking about, you know, the decision to call up Linus Carlson, who could get in the lineup tonight. You know, will it be Hoaglander or Kuzmenko coming out of the lineup and Carlson going in? Sean and Campbell River texted in. Uh, Is anyone wondering why management has called up Carlson three times before someone like Baines get a shot, gets a shot with the big club? Extra player could play considering PDG might be out for a while. And yeah, to your the last part of your text, Sean, it does look like Linus Carlson has a good shot to draw in tonight, although we'll have to wait and see what actually happens in warm-up and, uh, and going into the game. But, you know, as to the question of why hasn't Arshdeep Baines been called up, you look at the stats, and remember, Baines got off to such a hot start. He was leading the AHL in scoring for a little bit there, and his numbers are still overall really impressive. He has 27 points in 27 games. That's a really good season at the AHL level for a 22-year-old, especially an undrafted guy coming out of the WHL. But the pace has slowed down a little bit, and the thing is, 
you know, guess who else has been extremely uh, effective offensively at the AHL level? It's Linus Carlson. He has 23 points in 25 games. So I think at the beginning of the year, you could have made the offensive argument for Arshdeep Baines, right? Hey, this kid is filling the net. How can you go to somebody else? Now, I don't like there's no separation, really. I mean, they're basically both a point of game player at the AHL level level. So I don't think you can really build the argument for Baines on that basis. And, you know, Batch and I were talking about it. Every time Carlson has come up, Rick Tockett has liked what he's seen when he's gotten in the lineup at the NHL level. Rick Tockett has been, you know, pretty uh pretty positive in his commentary on Carlson's game. So at this point, you know, given that there's not much of a gap in their production at the AHL level, that Carlson has started to build that trust a little bit with Rick Tockett. I don't think it's a surprise. I think he's kind of earned that de facto first call-up spot from Abbotsford, at least for the time being. Now, the other thing I will say, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier in the show with regards to Jonathan LeCaramacchi and what his path looks to eventually making the NHL with the Canucks, you know, of course, Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford like to be very, very patient. So, I don't see a player like Arshdeep Baines or, you know, Atu Ratu, who's having a pretty good year at the AHL, or Vasily Colson. You know, the fact that it wasn't one of those guys being called up, that's not necessarily a negative for that player. Because sometimes you get in these situations, right, where the players you look at more favorably or you regard more highly in terms of what they can do for you down the road, those are the guys you actually want to leave in the AHL to make sure you're not impacting their development. In some situations, it can actually be a good thing for the player, at least in terms of how the organization views them, that they're the one not getting the call-up, right? Maybe they look at Baines and say, you know what? We really, really like that player. We don't want to bring him up until he's ready to stay. We know this could be short-term for Carlson, so we're not going to do that to Baines. We're going to keep him where he's having success in Abbotsford. You could apply the same logic to Ratu, certainly with Pod Colson. I mean, we've talked to Rick Dalio all about it. The plan is to be very, very patient with Pod Coles, and that's a guy who I don't think they want to call up until they know that he's going to stick around in the NHL. So, look, I think there's a variety of factors, but I don't think it's a inherently negative thing or speaks to, you know, the organization not liking any of the other players that didn't get called up. I think it's as simple as Carlson's having a really good year in the AHL, and he started to build that trust with Rick Tockett and the coaching stuff, which is so key. I mean, that's one of the things that could get him in over – Niels Hoaglander or Andre Kuzmenko over NHL regulars because he's building that trust with Rick Tockett. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Some really good questions coming in, including one uh, about possible playoff opponents for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, I'll read this one out. Where is it here? From, uh, I believe it was from Graham uh, who texted in, would you rather play, if you're the Canucks, would you rather play the Kings, the Oilers, or the Golden Knights in the first round of the playoffs? Those aren't the only options, of course. There's other p- potential Central Division opponents. But just looking at the division, would you rather play the Kings, the Golden Knights, or the Oilers in the first round if you were the Canucks? Text in 650-650. I'll address that. We'll hear from Rick Tockett as well. Take some more text too. Final segment of the show coming up here. Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 
6.50. Jamie Dodd here with you. Drants are back on the show tomorrow. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech Studio, 650. 6.50 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. We will hear from Canucks head coach Rick Tockett in this segment, but uh, as mentioned, speaking of the Dunbar Lumber text line, Chef Graham in Kelowna cooking up a great text and a great question for the show. He says, Jamie, what's up? And I appreciate that, Graham, first of all. Uh, Who would you rather play in the first round, Oilers, Kings, or Knights? He says, give me the Oilers and their sketchy goaltending. And this is a fascinating question. And text in 650-650. Who would you prefer the Canucks face in the first round? Just limiting it to these teams. Because I do think there's, you know, the best option, I think, is that the Canucks finish first in the division, maybe first in the conference, and get a team that crosses over uh, from the central division, right? Whether that's a Minnesota, a Nashville, Arizona, something like that. Give me those teams any day of the week before any of the three other likely playoff teams in the Pacific Division. But just limiting it limiting it to the Pacific Division rivals, the Golden Knights, the Kings, and the Edmonton Oilers, who would you rather see the Canucks face in round one? 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. And, you know, Chef Graham says the Oilers and their sketchy goaltending. And I think that's going to be a fairly popular answer. We've already got a couple of people. One person texts in simply Oilers. Another says, I would rather see the Canucks play the Oilers. Of course, that's from Joe in Victoria. Detroit Brian says, Oilers, Canucks beat them. And other than McDavid, the Canucks outmatched them positionally. I can't see them. I think he means the Canucks winning a seven-game series versus L.A. or Vegas. He also says Dallas is who I'd like to see. I don't think they're a good matchup for Dallas, but I think just based on the standings and the format, it's going to be really hard for them to meet in round one. So Oilers a very fairly pos- uh, popular choice here in this game. And I, I do understand it because, I mean, one, we saw the 8-1 dismantling on the on night one of the season. You know, they win again uh, in game two. There's another kind of laugher at Rogers Arena later on in the season. And, you know, everyone thought, okay, hey, the Canucks have broken the Edmonton Oilers. Well, it's a very different Oilers team. Very different vibes in Edmonton now than the last time the Canucks faced the Oilers, right? If you haven't checked, Connor McDavid is back to being Connor McDavid. Whatever injury issue, whatever thing was going on with Connor McDavid, that's in the past. He is the guy, again, in the NHL. If I had to choose somebody who's going to win the Hart Trophy, honestly, at this point, I would probably choose Connor McDavid with what he's doing for that team right now. So honestly, I think I might put Edmonton third of these teams. And I get it. I get the goaltending. I get that question. And yes, would the Canucks likely have a match, a, a massive edge in net on paper going into that series? Yeah, they absolutely would. But I just can't wrap my head around looking forward, getting excited about your team playing Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, but especially Connor McDavid in the Stanley Cup playoffs. That, to me, is absolutely terrifying. I can't get on board with it. I get it. I understand what people are saying. But I think they're last for me. If I had to choose, and I was thinking about this during the break and when the text came in earlier in the show, and I'm kind of surprised I'm going with this answer. I honestly think I might choose the Golden Knights. 
And I know with that, look, they're the defending Stanley Cup champions. And we've seen the Canucks play the Golden Knights this year and in recent years. And a lot of the times it's been pretty ugly, right? They play that heavy puck possession style of game. We saw what Jack Eichel and Mark Stone were able to do against the JT Miller line and some other lines for the Canucks when they visited uh, Rogers Arena earlier this year. I acknowledge all of that. But I'm just strictly thinking, okay, this team has already won the Cup. They've logged a bunch of miles in the playoffs, right? You look at their underlying performance this year, it's not that impressive. Now, there are reasons for that, obviously, right? Hey, take their foot off the gas in the regular season a little bit. Shea Theodore has been injured. So, yeah, the Golden Knights will be a lot more formidable come the playoff time than they are right now. But, you know, this is an old team with a lot of miles that they've logged, right? So how likely are they to be fully healthy? And I don't just mean having everyone on the ice, but having everyone on the ice in something close to peak condition come playoff time. Mark Stone struggled with injuries. Jack Eichel, of course, has struggled with injuries. Shea Theodore is out right now. Is there a possibility that you get Vegas and fatigue and injuries and games played and all of that starts to catch up with them a little bit and they're just maybe a bit softer than they otherwise would be as an opponent? I think that would be ultimately why I would take Vegas. And think about, hey, by the way, the last time the Canucks won a playoff series, yes, it was in the bubble, but it was against the defending Stanley Cup champion. I think there were some similar dynamics there. Now, amplified by the fact that it was the bubble and maybe that made it really, really hard for the Blues to have that motivation. But again, I think there can be worse things than playing the Stanley Cup champs in the first round uh, if you were the Canucks. The thing that makes it hard to really answer definitively on this one is that they haven't played the Kings yet. I don't know what that's going to look like. Now, not that I put a huge amount of stock into the record between given teams, right, in the regular season and who's going to win a playoff series, but I do think you can learn a lot about the matchup. And, you know, L.A., they've scuffled a little bit here, but they've also had some very impressive runs this season. And, again, I think much like Vegas, they play that really physical, heavy puck possession style of game, which I think can give the Canucks problems. So L.A. is a bit of a wild card here. But if you had to make me choose right now, honestly, I can't believe I'm saying it. I'm surprised even. Uh, I think I might choose the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, Rager agrees with me. He texts in, gotta go with the Knights. The damage that Bubble Thatcher Demko has done to the psyche of that organization is unfathomable. See, I think the Bubble Demko trauma went with Pete DeBoer to Dallas. I think that's where it resides now. I think Vegas firing Pete DeBoer, winning the Stanley Cup, completely changing their offensive philosophy. I don't think Bubble Demko scares them anymore. There's been enough turnover, new coach. I don't think that's a thing. I think Bubble Demko's a thing if the Canucks meet the Stars in the playoffs. And it's Pete DeBoer behind the bench thinking, oh, man, I remember what this guy almost did to us in the bubble. That's when I think Bubble Demko comes to play. But I don't think it comes into play uh, against the Golden Knights should they meet in round one. Ray and Campbell River says, why would, any, why would you want to play anyone other than the Oilers? Well, I don't know if you mean for entertainment value because, look, all Canadian matchup. Yeah, of course. That'd be fantastic. That'd be really exciting. You're playing Connor McDavid. But again, they have Connor McDavid. That's why. <laughs> it's a pretty easy answer, Ray. They have Connor McDavid. They have the best player in the world who's capable of basically single-handedly winning a playoff series. I think that's a pretty good reason to want to avoid the Oilers in round one. Somebody else texted in, Oilers, sure, but do you really want to go against first-round McDavid? That's from Isaac. Yeah, Isaac. I completely agree with what you were saying. I want no part of that. 
want absolutely no part of that. And again, I feel bad because, yeah, McDavid's McDavid, but like, let's not sleep on what Leon Dreisaitl has done in the playoffs in the past as well. That is an incredible, incredible duo to have to match up with against in the playoffs. I do not want any part of that. Uh, TR from Courtney says, give me Vegas every day. We can beat Vegas Golden Knights in a seven-game series. Our goaltending will shine. That's from uh, TR from Courtney. I mean, I do think there's an element, too, of, yeah, go out. Hey, what would be a better way to build some confidence going into round two than go out and take out the defending Stanley Cup champions? Colin from Caribou makes the point, picking a playoff opponent rarely works out as hope. I'd rather see them make sure they have home ice advantage in the first round. Yeah, I'm not saying they should try to manipulate the standings or throw games to try to get a specific opponent. The number one thing is finish as high up in the standings as possible. Make sure you have home ice advantage. But just, you know, if, if, as a fan, you could pick who you're going to play, who are you going to play? This one comes in, I say Vegas, and the reason why I say Vegas is because if we can beat them in the playoffs, can you imagine the confidence you'd have going into the second round? That one says, so I say Vegas. Uh, This one from Isaac and Abbotsford. I'd say the Kings first round. I think we could win that, but the games at the end of the season will be telling. And, yeah, that's, again, why I find it a little bit difficult to weigh in on the Kings one way or another right now. I really want to see what that matchup looks like. And starting at the end of February and into March, we'll get a big dose of it. We'll get four games in pretty quick succession between those teams to see, okay, how would this look? if these teams meet in the playoffs. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Uh, this text comes in. This is a good one. He says, the ra- your rationale in the Golden Knights is good, but you'd want them in the second or third round, not the first. They'll still have enough in the tank for that. That's a fair point. And look, when you're dealing with a team that's won already, yeah, fatigue and miles can be an issue, but pride is a big, a big thing as well. And you know that is a team that, obviously, they know how to win. They're going to have a ton of pride, especially in the first round. So, look, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying Canucks are going to be heavy favorites or anything like that if they go up against the Vegas Golden Knights in the first round. I just can see a world where they're a little less daunting, maybe, than some of the other potential opponents uh, in the playoffs for the Vancouver Canucks. Keep your texts coming in. Kings, Golden Knights, Oilers. Who would you rather see for a first-round opponent for the Vancouver Canucks in the playoffs this year. I'll take more of your text here, but first, it is a Canucks game day. They're playing the St. Louis Blues, a first game of a seven-game road trip. And uh, as always, we love to play the Rick Talking Audio here on this show. So here is the head coach of the Canucks speaking to the media on a game day. Coach, what did you talk to the group about in terms of finishing and, and the final 40 minutes? Well, just, you know, like obviously – you know, uh, when you're up five nothing, I, I have a, teams have a tendency to get, let your foot off the gas. I understand some of it, but I think we just got away from our game. You know, uh, our forecheck wasn't there. When you don't forecheck, and you're standing around, and then uh, you know they start blowing the zone. That's when they start taking over the game. So, it's if you're late, then you got to get out and make sure you're above people. So I think we were caught in between because of the lead, and then all of a sudden, Otto makes a team uh, a game of. So you just got, you know, it's a learning lesson for our group. You just got to make sure that you stay your game for 60 minutes. Without PDG, we know you'll have to make some changes to the lineup. Whoever does end up in, what do you need to see from them? What's the most important? Uh, well, just, I, I just need some more four, guys to forecheck a little harder and come up with loose pucks. You know, that's when we're at our best. So there's some jobs open for that sometimes. You know, we need a consistent effort of forechecking right now. What do you need to be ready for in particular against St. Louis? 
It was always a tough building to play against. You know, I still think they're a dangerous team. They got some really talented forwards. Um, you know, I, you, you can't take any team easy, and uh, I think they've been playing better. So, uh, you know, it's one of those games that uh, we don't take lightly. Demko tonight? Yeah, Demers in tonight, yep. Have you made your lineup decisions? No, not yet. Okay. Yeah, not yet. We'll do it like we did last game. Okay. Yeah. Rick, it's my understanding you went to see Chaser yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, Chaser's a good buddy mate over the years. Um, great guy. Um, you know, I went I went there to cheer him up for some reason. I left like he cheered me up. That's the type of guy Chaser is. He's just, uh, you know, he's an inspiring type of guy. You know, he does a lot of things for a lot of people. And uh, I think some of his friends said, "You got to start worrying about yourself. Don't worry about other people." So that's just the way Chaser is. He's such a great guy. Spent a lot of time. We watched a hockey game. Had something to eat there, and he paid for the food. So that was good. Explain to people the relationship that can sprout from. I mean, I know you guys went toe to toe during your career. Uh, the respect that comes out of that, and the relationship that can come out of the two former warriors who used to be at each other's throats. Yeah, no, for me too is like Chaser's a like I've you know in, in pursuing the coaching world, he was in the media world, but you know he we, we talk a lot of hockey. He's actually helped me a lot even as co as a coach. You know, he had a different perspective, um, very team oriented guy. So if I had a struggle as a coach with some players or whatever, he'd give me some different approaches. And actually this year he's told me a couple of things to try. Um, so I, I, I think for Chaser, I think there is a love of him to coach. You know, he never got into it, but I think he, uh, I think he's coaching, the, is he coaching the kids now in minors hockey? I think, I'm not sure he, he helps out, but I think that's one love that he always wanted coaching. So uh, he's, he's, a, he's got a smart brain when it comes to that. When you been two warriors who have clashed like that. Is there a time that you couldn't have seen yourself being where you are with Kelly Chase right now? No, because I think that era, if you look at all the guys that fought or tough and uh, they're, they're best of friends now, like, uh, you know, I don't know how it is nowadays, but, um, you know, most guys back then, you know, the hate was there, but after the, your, the, the, your, your career is over and you become, it's an instant bond. You know, there's so many, Craig Berube, Ty Domi, you can go down the list of guys, uh, Jimmy Cummings, all those guys that I've kept in touch with, uh, Louis DeBrus, that, you know, you, you battle them, and but they're some of your best friends now. Kelly Chase, obviously. Speaking of Craig Berube, I'm assuming you've had a chance to talk to him since the change, too. And yeah, a bunch of times, yeah. yeah, yeah. How's, how's he doing, I guess? No, he's great. He's, uh, he's good. He's actually, I've asked him to uh, watch our games and give me some advice, and uh, he, you know, he's just. I, I think he's in a good place in the sense he's watching a lot of hockey, uh, and he's also taking time off. So, I'm sure it'll be a lot of people, uh, you know, calling his phone soon or oh, whenever. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say you feel like it's not gonna be long before he's back in the league. I guess. Yeah. No, it's 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 a matter of time and when he's ready. Um, so it's just hope doesn't my phone doesn't ring. <laughs> That is Rick Tockett speaking to the media. A little bit about the Canucks, also about some of, uh, uh, you know, obviously we know Rick Tockett and Craig Berube, formerly the coach of the Blues, good friends. Uh, interesting to hear that Tockett's been, you know, even more reaching out to him now and offering to – or soliciting some advice from Berube. And somebody texts in, who is Chaser? And, yeah, what Tockett is talking about there, uh, former NHL player, former Blue, a uh, longtime St. Louis Blues player uh, in the 90s, uh, Kelly Chase – who's a tough guy in the 90s, just to give you an idea, 458 games played, 
over 2,000 penalty minutes in less than 500 games for Kelly Chase. And you heard Rick Tockett talking about some of the battles they had as players against each other. And Kelly Chase, as I understand, uh, in the hospital in St. Louis. So Rick Tockett was visiting him last night and spending some time with him and cheering up and getting cheered up uh, by an old friend. That was uh, what Tockett was addressing there. And all the best to Kelly Chase uh, as he uh, as he spends some time in the hospital. Uh, did think it was interesting. We'll We'll talk a little bit more about the... Who do you want in the first round of the playoffs conversation? Lots of good texts coming in on that one. But just to hear one talk it say, we're going to treat warm-ups like we did against Ottawa, so expect extra bodies out there in warm-ups tonight against St. Louis. We'll see who actually ends up playing in the game. And also, you know, asked about the decision between Hoaglander and Kuzmenko, and he said basically, like, we've got a job. We've got jobs open, and it comes down to forechecking. That's it. You want to earn a job? You want to earn a guaranteed spot in the lineup? Show me that you can forecheck like Talkit and the coaching staff are asking. That's that's the message. Very, very clear there. You want to drill down to one thing, go out there and do that forechecking job. That's been consistent with Kuzmenko. No, I think Hoaglander, when he's been at his best, he's shown that he can do that. So I think it's an issue of consistency more for anything with Hoaglander. For Kuzmenko, I'm just not sure if that's going to be a part of his game. I think that's a tough assignment to give to Andre Kuzmenko, but I also understand why Rick Tockett is being consistent on that point and something to watch tonight as we start to think about and start to guess who might be in and out of the lineup over the course of this seven-game road trip. 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Still taking texts about who you want to meet of the three Pacific Division teams, the three other Pacific Division teams likely to be in the playoffs, the Kings, the Golden Knights, and the Oilers, who do you want the Canucks to play in the first round of the playoffs? Before we get into some of those, I did like this text in. Uh, Unsigned says, are you more excited to see Bubble Demko, or are you more excited to see a revamped and more intense Elias Patterson or JT Miller? And one interesting dynamic I think is going to be with this, look, if this, and uh, I feel kind of silly saying if, because I'm very, very sure that they're going to make the playoffs. So if slash when this Canucks team is going into the playoffs, there's going to be a lot of talk about the relative inexperience of this team in the playoffs, especially, obviously, with regards to the Golden Knights. But even, you know, you look at some of the the series wins the Oilers have had, the Kings have been there, even if they haven't won uh, a series for a while. But don't forget, what we've seen the Canucks' best players in the playoffs as Canucks. Now, yes, it was the bubble, and if you want to – Put a little asterisk there or something. I can't stop you. But, again, these players have played in the playoffs for the Canucks. And the guys who are here from that team, pretty much to a man, were excellent. You don't need me to remind you what Thatcher Demko did. But JT Miller, 18 points in 17 games. Elias Pettersson, 18 points in 17 games. Quinn Hughes, 16 points from the blue line in 17 games. And that was a while ago now. Quinn Hughes has improved a lot. Elias Pettersson has improved. JT Miller, I think, has improved from where he was in that 1920 season. So you guys have, have a track record. Yes, I understand it was not normal by any stretch. It's going to be a lot different being in, you know, another team's home rank with fans in the stands, being in your home rank with your fans in the stands. Yeah, it's going to be different, but these guys have been able to do it in their taste of playoff action, right? They couldn't control that it was the bubble. They were just given the situation, and they thrived. Again, the star players, Demko, Miller, Pedersen, Hughes, all thrived in the playoffs. So, yeah, they got to do it in this version, too, in the kind of real version. But I do think there's reason 
for optimism and reason to kind of not necessarily fully buy into the, uh uh-oh, what are these guys going to do in the playoffs? Well, the one chance we got to see them as Canucks, they did really, really well uh, in the bubble playoffs back in 2020. Who would you rather meet in the first round of the playoffs, the Kings, the Golden Knights, or the Oilers? Mason from Campbell River says, listen, they all scare the bleep out of me. No good opponents out West. And Tyler says, I'm not going to lie, Jamie. The Kings, Oilers, and Knights. Seems like asking if you want the electric chair, lethal injection, or the firing squad. I'll take the Coyotes in the wild card. That's from Tyler. And look, it's a good point. I agree. Like, as much as I'm saying the Golden Knights, it's not like I'm sitting here like, oh, yeah, that's a great matchup for the Canucks. No problem in round one if you get the Golden Knights. This really is a pick-your-poison situation. There's three very, very difficult opponents, different challenges, different potential benefits from playing, all of them. But I agree, and as I made the point earlier in the show, you know, I really think playoff watch is off. This is division title watch now for the Canucks. Can you win the division? Can you win the conference? Can you get that crossover team from the Central, whether it's Arizona, whether it's Nashville? Like, we've seen what the Canucks have done to Nashville. I don't think Nashville's in the same class, even if they're both playoff teams. I think the Canucks would be heavy, heavy favorites in that series. I think they'd be heavy favorites against Arizona. It's a much, much different environment than having to go up against one of those three teams in the Pacific. A bunch of people saying, uh, and this one's from uh, Chris and Nanaimo, a bunch of people texting in, man, it would be awesome if we could get the Kraken would actually love, would love to actually build the rivalry. Some other people have texted in, man, how great would it be for it to be the Kraken as well? Because that rivalry is still very much theoretical rather than actual so far. The teams just haven't really been good. They haven't played some high-stakes games against each other. Hadn't been good at the same time, I should say. Obviously, the Canucks playing great this season. Kraken had a great year last year, but it hasn't matched up at the same time to really generate those high-stakes games. And look, they're tied in the standings by points. And I'm not. Don't worry, I'm not going to do the points percentage thing. Drancer is not here, so we don't have to do that. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. But Edmonton's just been so good. And I know Seattle is on a hot streak right now themselves they've won five in a row but Edmonton has three games in hand they are clicking we know how hot they can be when McDavid gets going like this when Dreisaitl is going I'm not saying it's impossible but I think it's going to be difficult for Seattle to hang with Edmonton in the race for that fourth spot in the Pacific Division now maybe Seattle is able to track down Nashville or Arizona, and there's five teams from the Pacific, and could that open up a situation where the Canucks and the Kraken meet if the if the Canucks are the top seed in the conference? Maybe, and yeah, I agree. That would be fantastic to see. I just think if you're kind of weighing the odds about who they're most likely to meet, it's going to be pretty difficult for it to be the Seattle Kraken. Not impossible. Not impossible, but going to be difficult. I think if you're hoping for a rivalry-building series, you're probably looking at the All-Canadian matchup. And yeah, that means having to go up against the Edmonton Oilers and Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Uh, Thanks to everyone for texting in. Shout out to Chef Gavin in Kelowna for the question. Generated a ton of good texts into the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, I think it's Canuck Central coming up next year. Uh, Do you know, Elon? Is it Canuck Central today? Oh, it's Kipper and Bourne. Never mind. But Canuck Central will be on shortly uh, because it's the early game in St. Louis and they'll have the pregame coverage for you as well. Batch and Randeep will have the call. You can hear it all right here on Sportsnet 650.